This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you so much for being with us here on the program. Yes, as you can tell by my background and my attire, it is Independence Day. Well, you know, not today. That's actually going to be on Saturday because it is the 4th of July, but today's the 2nd, and this is our last weekly show, at least our last regular show, uh, before everything kicks off, so we are going to go ahead and do our 4th of July special today. We have a lot of specials actually coming up, uh, a lot to do in this show, and then we actually have a special geek in tomorrow that we're going to be doing for Friday's show, the top 10 most patriotic characters in pop culture so be looking forward to that tomorrow evening as well we've got plenty of content plenty of things to talk about and uh you know we we want to never leave you hanging when it comes to that huh. looks like i've got a little problem here on my camera let me correct that real quick there we go hopefully that improves it a little bit there we go okay the auto zoom i guess was still on anyway so let's go ahead and jump in to our project you know uh, the great thing about this country, and, and one of the things that has always been a uniting force in our country, has been our independence, our founding. That regardless of where you're from, who you are, that kind of thing, that it, you can go back to the founders, you can go back to the founding fathers, and that is a uniting thing for Americans. But unfortunately, there has been a movement in recent years to try to take that away from us, to try to move people away from having that being a uniting force in the American fabric. And I think that it's done a lot of harm to the country, and, and that's part of the reason that we're seeing ourselves as divided as we are. I know I hear this an awful lot when I talk to people that believe that there were problems with our founding, and, and this is not to suggest that our founders were by any means perfect or ought to be romanticized or even as, you know, unfortunately there are a handful of people that do this as well, almost deitized as though that they were, they were perfect and could do no wrong. That's, of course, incorrect as well. The founders were not perfect men. They did have their flaws. But there is a concerted effort in the country now to try to take the founders down, to drag them through the mud. And if they've got problems, if there is historical evidence that they did something that was incorrect, let's have that conversation. I'm fine with that. But unfortunately, what this movement has been doing recently is moving past just being able to criticize our founders, which is not inherently a bad thing as long as the criticism is legitimate, and straight up just lying about them. Unfortunately, that has been where this movement to try to dethrone the, or uh, deplatform, take them off of the high platform, the pedestal that people have put them on, to try to drag the founders through the mud, and it's, it's simply incorrect. So one of the things that we're going to do to talk about our founding, to sort of set the record straight tonight, is we're going to look at something recently that was done by the New York Times. So just for those of you who are unaware of this, there's a thing called the 1619 Project, and most of you, even the ones that are pretty well-informed and pay attention to the news, probably never heard of this thing before. But it is incredibly important, and I've been talking about this, if you've been listening to this show, I've talked about it at least sporadically throughout the past year because it, it went up in August of last year so. Uh, it's, it's been in the news and, and people have talked about it since then, but 
One thing that is really concerning now, and, and now's the perfect time to talk about, it, is because a lot of schools right now are deciding whether or not to include it as a part of their curriculum for the next school year. And so that's why it's so incredibly important that when it comes to this, you know it, you know what it is, you know what it teaches, and you understand the errors in it. And also, even for people that have never heard of the, the 1619 Project, that don't have kids in schools, that it doesn't affect them in that direct way, because this is out there now, this is part of our national conversation, and the vast majority of it is just made up completely out of whole cloth, and so people may be telling you things that in their mind are facts because they read it in the New York Times, and, you know, God forbid, the New York Times, you can trust anything they write. So this is the problem that has cropped up, is these things are going to be brought up. You need to be familiar with these arguments, familiar with these lies, in order to be able to debunk them, which is what we do here at Tactics. We teach you how to be able to make these arguments and to have meaningful conversations with people. That's the, the mantra of the show. It's the reason that the, the, uh, the motto of the show revolves around that idea that speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. You need all of those things to be able to have meaningful conversations with other people. So the 1619 Project is essentially a pseudo-history project that was designed to use race as a vehicle to usher in Marxism. Now, it's a very bold claim, but I'm going to explain to you tonight how this is the case that essentially what they're trying to do is co-opt the history of the founding and ruin it for people so that it will be easier to usher in Marxism as a replacement for it. Be that socialism, communism, whatever sort of ism that sprung out of Marxism, that's what they're ultimately trying to do. Now, here's the stated goal. This isn't me just, you know, projecting. This is the actual stated goal of the 1619 Project, it's in the section of the 1619 Project titled, Why We Wrote the 1619 Project. So this is, from, this is in their own words from their own mouth. And you can see here as we pull this up. So this is from that section where it says, uh, 1619 is not the year that most Americans know as a notable date in our country's history. Those who do are at most a tiny fraction of those who can tell you that 17, 1776 is the year of our nation's birth. What if, however, we were to tell you that the moment of the country's defining contradictions first came into the world was late August of 1619? That was when a ship arrived at Point Comfort in the British colony of Virginia, bearing a cargo of 20 to 30 enslaved Africans. Their arrival inaugurated a barbaric system of chattel slavery that would last for the next 250 years. This is sometimes referred to as the country's original sin, but it is more than that. It is the country's very origin. And then a little bit later on in that same, the same article there, the goal of the 1619 Project is to reframe American history by considering what it would mean to regard 1619 as our nation's birth year. Doing so requires us to place the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the very center of the story that we tell ourselves about who we are as a country. All right, so on this, there are two things that I want you to recognize very first off, off the bat. So you notice how they couch the language here. So in that first little highlighted part that you see, 
What if, however, we were to tell you that the moment of the country's defining contradictions came into the world in August 16, 19? And then the, the second half of that, the second highlighted part there, where they're saying the goal of the project, this is their own stated goal, is to reframe American history, considering what it would mean to take that supposition as a fact. So this is what's going on here. You ever watched any historical fiction? Uh, one great example, I've not watched it myself, but I've heard good things about it. I've been meaning to watch it myself, is Man in the High Castle. It's a series that's on Amazon Prime. And what Man in the High Castle essentially does is it takes a look at what America and the world would look like if Hitler had won the war. So if World War II was won by the Nazis, the Nazis were still controlling anything, what would history look like? Okay, that's an interesting premise. There's other shows that do this too. DC Comics actually has an alternate reality where same thing happened, the Nazis won World War II. Uh, there's also Code Geass, which is a show that I really like. It, it imagines what the world would be like if England had won the Revolutionary War and had essentially taken over the world. Uh, there's another one, if you play video games, Assassin's Creed 3, where they have a DLC a package that you can buy where George Washington, if he had not stepped down, if he had become the king of America as opposed to the president and became a tyrant. And so there's a lot of different ways to look at this, and there's nothing wrong with historic fiction. I actually really like historic fiction. I like asking those questions, what if? But I don't take them as fact. That's the difference here. They're saying, well, what if we thought of that as our country's founding? Okay, well, you know, what if the sky were upside down and the ground was above us and the sky was below us? It's an interesting question, but it doesn't make it real. That's what's so ridiculous about this is the whole thing from the very beginning, they tell you on the onset, basically, oh, this, this isn't history at all. This is just stuff that we made up and postulated and, and imagined. It's like watching Man in the High Castle or Code Geass or Assassin's Creed 3. It's just a what-if scenario that gives you alternate history. That's essentially what this thing is, and yet it is presented as historic fact, and people will cite this as history. So that's essentially what's going on here. The leader of the project that was released in New York Times Magazine is one of the staff writers for New York Times Magazine named Nicole Hannah-Jones. And to get a little background on who she is and, and what she does, she actually started a foundation called the Ida B. Wells Foundation, which, by the way, I find ironic on a number of levels, because if you actually know anything about Ida B. Wells, she was a female black journalist, one of the first ones in the country, very successful, excellent writer, and she was a registered Republican that was fighting slavery. So I do find that pretty hilarious, that this woman seems to be the exact opposite of the namesake of her foundation, but the Ida B. Wells Foundation is uh, an organization that she put together to, uh, I forget exactly what the stated mission was, but it essentially boils down to it's supposed to help provide uh, educational opportunities for prospective black journalists. And guess where the funding comes from? The Open Societies Foundation. Now, you may be there scratching your head going, wait a second, Caleb, I, I think I've heard of the Open Societies Foundation. What is that? It's one of the Tides Foundation's offshoots that is funded by George Soros. So already, 
right out of the gate, the person that is the 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 leader of the 1619 project, the person that organized the whole thing and put it together for New York Times magazine is a Marxist that is working for George Soros. She is actually receiving money through her foundation from a George Soros foundation. So there you go. We're already off to a hot start here. And she also, to, to prove that it's not just that she's taking George Soros's money, that she actually does believe this stuff, uh, she also, back in 2008, made a trip to Cuba and published an article in 2008 basically reporting on her findings, and some of the things that she mentioned were just absolutely staggering. First of all, one of the things she talked about is that Cuba's healthcare system, which is a train wreck and a half, is a model that the rest of the world should follow. She also praised their literacy program, uh, which is hilarious on a number of levels. I wonder if Bernie Sanders was reading this in 2008, and, and maybe that's where he got that talking point. I don't know. Uh, but she goes on and just lavishes and throws praise on Cuba, talks about how wonderful the Castros are, so on and so forth, and, and talks about how great it is. And just so you don't think, well, this is maybe just something happened in 2008, maybe in the 12 years since that she has renounced her Marxist ideas or, or maybe she's changed or evolved. This is an interview on a podcast last year of her talking about Cuba and praising them. It's from Vox.com. If you want to see the most equal uh, multiracial, uh, it's not a democracy, <laughs> most equal multiracial country in our hemisphere, it would be Cuba. In places that are truly, um, at least biracial countries, Cuba actually mm -hmm. has the least inequality. And that's largely due to socialism, which I'm sure no one wants to hear. Now, follow the logic here. She just said that the country, not democracy, which, I mean, Cuba's not a democracy. She's right on correcting herself there. That the country that has the most racial equality is Cuba. Well, first of all, she is correct. I'm not saying that she's wrong there because everybody in Cuba, except for the people at the absolute tip top, all of them are equal because they're all incredibly poor. Just like right now, Venezuela has an awful lot of equality. There's very little disparity in the race. There's no wage pay gap. Uh, there's no income inequality. Everybody's dirt poor and scrounging around in garbage to find food. So, yes, lots of equality doesn't make it a good idea. She is technically correct there. But the funny thing is, she's saying that that's the place with the most racial equality and the reason that they have that racial equality is because of socialism. So let's follow the logic trail here. If she is saying that racial equality is the way that you get there is socialism like Cuba has. I mean, this isn't even her trying to make the Scandinavian argument that Bernie usually does. This is her saying we need to do what Cuba does. If she's saying that racial equality is her goal and that the country that we ought to be following to do that is Cuba because they have socialism and that's how you get racial equality, then yes, she is saying that she wants America to be like Cuba. I mean, it's absolutely astonishing. Now, granted, if you understand her 2008 article, you do know that she actually blames somehow America for all of Cuba's economic woes and that the only reason there are things about Cuba that are terrible are because big bad America is somehow causing them to be economically weak. But I digress. 
that's the reason that she try basically chalks up every bad thing in Cuba to America and every good thing in Cuba to socialism. This is her belief system, and she's the one that's in charge of this project. By the way, if you think that when it comes to being radical, that maybe she's not talking about the violent socialist overthrows that happened in Cuba, maybe she's just talking about the quote-unquote democratic socialism that we hear so much about from the left, where you don't have to have violent riots in the streets except she kind of already endorsed the riots that are going on right here in America in response to George Floyd's death. So you can see this tweet here from Nicole Hannah-Jones. And I want you to first, before you even read what she read, look at what the title of the article she's responding to is. Call them the 1619 riots. That is a headline from the New York Post. And her response to this is, it would be an honor, thank you. Now, she has since deleted this tweet, but the point is, when somebody decided to name the riots after her brainchild, and remember, that particular article was talking about the statue of George Washington that had been pulled down, so what they did was, the protesters set a flag on fire, and then laid the burning flag over the statue of George Washington, then pulled the statue of Washington down, and then urinated on it. These people are behaving like savages. And when somebody says, well, since they think that George Washington is some kind of horrible racist, that idea must have come from the 1619 Project, we should call them the 1619 Riots. And she goes, oh, that would be a badge of honor. This is a horrible, horrible person. But this is what she believes. This is what she wanted. She wants the violent riots. She wants the violence in the streets. This is a dedicated, old-school, Soviet-style Marxist. And this is the person running this project. She also is not just a Marxist. She's also a racist. Back in uh, her earlier days in journalism, she wrote a letter to the editor to a paper in Notre Dame, Indiana, called The Observer, and this is what she had to say about white people. So if we can go ahead and pull that up here. So this is part of her response. I find it hard to believe that any member of the white race can have the audacity and hypocrisy to call any other culture savage. The white race is the biggest murderer, rapist, pillager, and thief in the modern world. And then, a little bit further down, Even today, the descendants of these savage people pump drugs and guns into the bollock, sometimes, I guess a typo, community, pack black people into the squalor of segregated urban ghettos, and continue oat, I'm assuming that's supposed to be too, and continue oat being bloodsuckers in our communities. A devil calling someone a savage is like a pot calling the kettle black. Now, if you're asking yourself the question, how does somebody get away with this, and how does the New York Times just sweep this under the rug? Well, actually, this is not the first time the New York Times has had somebody say similar things. They also have another staff writer that got caught in saying some of the things like she likes to torture older white men and scare them and that kind of thing. And uh, New York Times just kind of said, oh, well, and then just ignored it. So this is sort of the modus operandi of the New York Times. But, but look at this here. Look at this quote. 
where she's talking about the white race, not some white people. The white race as a whole is a murderer, rapist, pillager, and thief on the modern world. Do you think there's any chance whatsoever that if the New York Times had a white journalist who had, no matter how long ago it was, and even if he had since changed his ways and changed his way of thinking, is there any doubt in your mind that if you would reverse the races and somebody had said that the black race is the biggest murderer, pillager, rapist, so on and so forth, and then referred to the black race as a group of devils and bloodsuckers, that there is any chance whatsoever that that person would not be immediately fired. Even if they had changed since then, and she has issued absolutely no statement to suggest that she has changed her mind. But this is who this woman is. So, we've talked about why this is going on. We've talked about the motivation behind all this, because this is a vehicle to usher in Marxism. Now let's talk about how, because there's a lot of lies in the 1619 Project about the founding. So, the first one that she actually writes herself, because there's a lot of different contributing writers to the 1619 Project, she's just the one that oversees all of it, but this is one of the articles that she wrote herself. Uh, this is the headline. Our democracy's founding ideals were false when they were written. Black Americans have fought to make them true. And to elaborate on this, this is... Oop, that's not right. Uh, to elaborate on this, this is what she says in this same article. The United States is a nation founded on both an ideal and a lie. Our Declaration of Independence, approved on July 4th, 1776, proclaims that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. But the white men who drafted those words did not believe them to be true for the hundreds of thousands of black people in their midst. This is a complete lie, but again, it's something that they are trying to push, and this is actually a fairly t common talking point if you're talking to somebody on the Democratic side. They will often say, well, they said that all men are created equal, but they didn't really mean it for black people. No, they absolutely did. This is something that there is absolutely no historic backing on that they did not believe those words. I can provide sources after sources. We'll give you just a few tonight, but there's a, a mountain of research that actually shows the exact opposite of that is true. But you'll notice there that she doesn't cite a source. She gives no explanation. And if you go to her article... There's no footnotes, no notations, nothing. This is basically just an assumption that she expects you to take as gospel without providing any explanation or the way that she arrived at that conclusion whatsoever. She just presents it as a fact and then leaves it alone. There's absolutely nothing backing up this claim. But of the three draft sorry, of the five drafters of the Declaration of Independence, three of them had never owned slaves at any point. Benjamin Franklin, Roger Sherman, and John Adams, none of them slave owners. And they were three of the five in the committee that actually drafted it. And Benjamin Franklin became the founder and then president of America's very first abolitionist society. He was a very outspoken critic of slavery and wanted to get, it, get rid of it he founded the very first organization in America dedicated to the abolishment of slavery. 
And then Roger Sherman, he was an outspoken critic of slavery as well, which shouldn't be surprising because he was a Puritan. Puritans, as a religious belief, they believed that it was part of their duty to God to get rid of slavery. And he was one of the authors. And then there's John Adams, who was not only a critic of slavery, but actually because he was also a lawyer, that was his day job. As a lawyer, he actually represented slaves that tried to sue their masters in order to gain their freedom. And let's also not forget that his son, John Quincy Adams, and I'm assuming that he learned this at home based on John Adams' record on it, he is the attorney that represented the slaves on the Amistad that was trying to get them freed from their slavery when they had been brought over by the slave trade. Now, let's look at Thomas Jefferson. Now, I go into much greater detail. In fact, I spent a great deal of time on this in last year's Independence Day special. Uh, we just sort of did a profile on Thomas Jefferson and his original draft of the Declaration of Independence. But if you look at his original draft, he spends an entire paragraph talking about how wrong it was of the King of England to continue to perpetuate slavery. In fact, he even says, he basically makes fun of the king for even calling himself a Christian when he is in favor of slavery. If you've read that original draft, the one that Thomas Jefferson himself wrote, before having any interaction with the committee, that was the, the original copy, and then it got edited and changed, and eventually, unfortunately, that part got edited out. But if you look at that original draft, you can actually see the pin marks if you I've seen a photocopy of the original one, you can actually see where he presses down with his pen, where he starts writing in all capital letters for emphasis. That was the thing that he was most passionate about out of the whole thing. And, and then there's also the fact that Thomas Jefferson actually advocated for the abolishment of slavery several different times, uh, not only in his home state of Virginia, but nationwide in the Northwest Colony and also later on in France. So he was an abolitionist even in other countries, wanted to get rid of it in Europe as well. And so the idea that, because yes, Thomas Jefferson was a slave owner, but he was adamantly against slavery. There's no question about that for anybody that has done about 10 minutes worth of research. I guess the 1619 Project can't be bothered to do any of that. The only one that is there that could have been at least argued to be pro-slavery was a man named Robert Livingston of New York. He was a slave owner, and he did oppose an anti-slavery measure. So you could at least make the argument that maybe he was in favor of slavery. Maybe that's the reason that that part of the Declaration of Independence wound up not making the final cut. But even in the final draft, there was several provisions that would lead us to believe that it was an anti-slavery document. One of the most prominent is when it says life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If you know what the original draft says, it says life, liberty, and property. Life, liberty, and property was a, a phrase originally coined by John Locke when he wrote The Second Trees of Government. And so the founders, familiar with his work, Thomas Jefferson, somebody who studied Locke quite a bit, he just recycled that phrase. So why would they change it? Why, why would they go with pursuit of happiness instead of property? You see, if they had put it into the nation's founding document that it was life, liberty, and property, people might get the wrong idea 
that when they're talking about property, because remember, at the time, slaves were viewed as property, that that could be interpreted as having a right to slavery. And the committee didn't want that to happen, and so it was changed to the pursuit of happiness. So something that was more general but could not be misunderstood as a right to owning slaves. The Declaration of Independence is an anti-slavery document. It was cited by men like Frederick Douglass, who were of abolitionists trying to get rid of slavery. They called back to the Declaration of Independence. And the Supreme Court, when considering those things, did consider the Declaration of Independence as relevant in that case, which is why it was so wise for the committee to change it from property to pursuit of happiness. I don't know if they really foresaw that or it was just something that, that happened later on that they couldn't have foreseen, but either way, they made their ideas about slavery very, very clear on that. So here, this brings us to another big lie, probably the biggest lie in the entire series, in the entire 1619 project, that the founders themselves actually wanted slavery. So, yeah, there we go. Con conveniently left out of our founding mythology is the fact that one of the primary reasons some of the colonists decided to declare their independence from Britain was because they wanted to protect the institution of slavery. Now, it's very important to note here. You'll see there that it says the primary reasons some of the colonists. Originally, some of was not in there. And I'll explain how that revision came about, but originally it just said the reasons the colonists, in other words, implying that all of them were motivated by trying to preserve the institution of slavery. This is a complete and utter lie. There's no gentler way to put it. So, first of all, just like the last claim, they offer no source, no explanation, don't explain how that claim got in there or what motivated the writer to put that, but they just make the claim and offer no explanation whatsoever. Again, this is an incredibly sloppy work of history. And so, one thing that doesn't make a whole lot of sense if this claim were true, that they actually fought the war trying to preserve the institution of slavery, six of the 13 colonies had ended slavery less than 15 years after the end of the Revolutionary War. That's weird. It seems kind of a waste to wage a eight-year-long war to preserve slavery for only seven years after that. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? And so, <laughs> it's such a ridiculous notion that the colonies were somehow trying to preserve slavery, and that's the reason that they fought the revolution. Let's also remember that two of those colonies, two of the six that we were just talking about, they actually tried to end slavery before the war. And were told by the king, no, you can't do that. You're a British colony. The British colonies allow slavery. Ergo, you can't outlaw slavery. That was one of the reasons that it was included in the original draft of the Declaration of Independence is Jefferson was upset that the king would not allow the individual colonies to make slavery illegal, which two had already tried to do. So that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. They were trying to get rid of slavery, but the reason they fought the war is so they could preserve slavery. It's complete and utter madness, and this is what happens when you just make crap up and kind of hope that it's true. This is what happens when you don't do your research. Also, Jefferson 
Even though it was not successful, Jefferson himself came within one vote of outlawing the slave trade in Virginia in 1778. This is back when he was a member of the legislative body in the state of Virginia. He came very, very close within an eyelash of outlawing slavery altogether in the state of Virginia before... Uh, I mean, almost got rid of it completely before the war was even really over. And the legislation banning slavery in the Northwest Territory happened in 1784. That's several years before we even had the Constitution. And the Constitution was also an anti-slavery document. We may go over that on Constitution Day. I don't know. We'll have to see. Uh, but that's beyond the scope of what we're going to be talking about today, since it's July 4th, of course. And another thing that doesn't make a whole lot of sense if the, the whole Revolutionary War was fought over the preservation of slavery is uh, why were there 5,000 black men that actually fought with the colonies and actually tried to help them secure their liberty? Why is there 500 men that we know of that actually have a monument that served under General George Washington at Valley Forge? Seems kind of odd that they would be fighting a war to keep themselves in slaves. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. But nonetheless, that's where we are. Leslie Harris, a professor of history, a historian at Northwest University, was one of 1619's fact-checkers. And she actually said that Miss Hannah Jones was extremely dismissive of anyone that was even remotely critical of the project, and this is her rebuttal that she later published in Politico. Far from being fought to preserve slavery, the Revolutionary War became a primary disruptor of slavery in the North American colonies. Lord Dunmer's proclamation, a British military strategy designed to unsettle the southern colonies by invading, uh, inviting enslaved people to flee to British lines, propelled hundreds of enslaved people off plantations and turned some Southerners to the Patriot side. So, in other words, there were some Southern uh, planned, or southern colonies that were kind of on the fence, and as a general rule, Southerners tended to be more pro-Britain than their Northern allies. But she's saying that once this happened and slavery became an issue in the Revolutionary War, that actually increased support of the Revolution. It also led to the most, most of the 13 colonies to arm and employ free and enslaved black people with the promise of freedom to those who served their armies. While neither side fully kept its promises, thousands of enslaved pre people were freed as a result of these policies. Despite my advice, the Times published the incorrect statement about the American Revolution anyway. In Hannah Jones' introductory essay... In addition, the paper's characterizations of slavery in early America reflected laws and practices more common in the antebellum era than in the colonial times, and did not accurately illustrate the varied experiences of first generation of slave people that arrived in Virginia in 1619. Holy cow, that is about as scathing a rebuke by a historian as anything I have ever seen. She said, not only did she get this completely wrong, in fact, it was the opposite of what she claimed, that uh, the colonies were actually anti-slavery, 
And when Britain tried to turn the slaves against them, that actually increased support for the revolution and them de declaring their own independence. That actually hurt England on that side. She says, not only did she get that 180 degrees incorrectly, but on top of that, the other stuff that she's trying to present about 1619 and that she's trying to present about later history, that's all wrong too. Basically, she's saying everything that the project aspired to do, it got incorrect. And this is a person that was a fact checker for this project who said at the time, this is incorrect, the Times just went ahead and published it anyway. Completely ignored her. It's one of the most incredible things that I've ever seen. I don't know that I've ever seen scholarship this sloppy. But she's not the only one. Actually, historians on the left and right have rejected the 1619 Project as being pure fiction. In fact, a group of five history professors from across the country actually wrote a letter to the editor to the New York Times. And uh, this happened back in December. And these professors were from some of the nation's most liberal universities, including Brown and Pince, uh, Princeton. Remember, Princeton is the school that just recently renamed Woodrow Wilson's building because they thought he was too racist. So not exactly a bastion of conservative thinking. Uh, granted, Woodrow Wilson's a Democrat, so you could debate back and forth on that. But my point in all of that is it's not like Princeton's halls are filled with a bunch of ardent racists that are just trying to protect the founders or anything like that. Uh, these are people that are looking at the history and saying, no, it's objectively incorrect. Uh, in fact, they called for the Times to issue um, rebuttals and corrections for any of the misinformation that is contained, of which they are very critical, specifically of this claim and others as well, and said that it needs serious overhauling if it's ever going to wind up as school material. And then later, they caught a whole bunch of more heat from other historians. This time, a group of 12 historians came together very critical of the project. And they were from various universities all across the United States. And then finally, after all this, nine months later, they issued one correction. And that correction was they added the words, some of the colonists, as opposed to just the colonists wanted to preserve slavery. I mean, that makes the lie a little bit less wrong, but it certainly doesn't make it right. It cer certainly gives the implication that they have no basis for whatsoever that part of the reason the revolution happened is because they were trying to preserve slavery. This claim makes absolutely no sense, and it doesn't have anything to back it up. Yet the Times refuses to do anything about this. But... Honestly, all of this shouldn't be surprising to anyone. After all, Nicole Hannah-Jones said in her own words in an interview with MSNBC that this project is not history, and that's not its intended goal anyway. Let's go ahead and watch that. Yes, so the 1619 Project is not a history. It is a work of journalism that examines the modern and ongoing legacy of slavery. Huh. Well, if it's not history, why are they proposing that it be used in schools? And also, the other part of that claim that is equally ridiculous, do you just does it not have to be true as long as it's journalism? Now, granted, I get that nowadays we have basically redefined the word journalism to mean activist, 
and most people that are coming out of universities that are, are coming out with liberal arts degrees in journalism think that it is their job to be an activist, not a journalist. I understand that. But are we supposed to pretend that it's okay to just lie as a journalist? Because uh, that says something pretty bad about your profession. Yeah, you're right. This is absolutely not a work of history, but it's not really a work of journalism e either. The only accurate way to describe it is the way I described it at the very beginning of this. It is a work of historical fiction, a what-if scenario for something that never actually happened. That's the only way this thing can be accurately described. I thought accuracy was kind of important whether you were doing history or journalism. Apparently, regardless of which one you're doing, it just doesn't matter to the New York Times. So, ultimately, the important question to ask here is why does all of this matter? Why is this so incredibly important? Because there are people that read this in the New York Times and take it as though it is actually true, despite the fact that it has no footnotes, despite the fact that it, it doesn't actually reference any of the facts contained within it. And there are people that actually believe this. Let's take a look, for example, at a way that this could influence our political, uh, our political process. This is a clip of Tim Kaine speaking from the well of the Senate. The first African-Americans into the English colonies came to Point Comfort, Virginia in 1619. They were slaves. They'd been captured against their will. But they landed in colonies that didn't have slavery. There were no laws about slavery in the colonies at that time. The United States didn't inherit slavery from anybody. We created it. It got created by the Virginia General Assembly and the legislatures of other states. It got by the court systems in colonial America and sense that enforced fugitive slave laws. It was, we created it. And we created it and maintained it over centuries. And in, in my lifetime, we have finally stopped some of those practices, but we've never gone back to undo it. Stopping racist practices at year 350 of 400 years, but then taking no effort to dismantle them is not the same as truly combating racism. I don't know what Senator Tim Kaine wants us to do. And remember, this isn't a nobody. This is a guy that came very close within an eyelash of becoming the vice president of the United States. Remember, he was Hillary Clinton's running mate. So this isn't just some random senator from a, a no-name state. This is a guy that is very, very high in the Democrat organization, basically citing, almost verbatim, some of the premises presented by the 1619 Project. And I don't understand what he means by, but we never went back to undo them. What does he want us to do? Does he have a DeLorean in his garage? Can we go back in time and fix that? Because if we can, I'm actually in favor of that. I would actually be in favor of going back in time and ending slavery before it started. That, that's a good plan, not sure that we can actually do that. I don't understand what he means by we need to go back and dismantle it. Maybe what they mean is dismantling the history and replacing it with a lie. That seems to be what his party's policy has been of late. Let's just tear down all the statues, burn all the records, and let's make up some kind of fiction and pretend that that is reality. But this is why this is so important, because there are people in power, lawmakers, that believe this kind of stuff to be true, and it's simply not. 
Virtually all human civilization, from the beginning of time, had slavery. Not every single one, but almost every one. There are very, very few exceptions to that rule. And to be honest, I can't even think of one right away. I mean, maybe directly after the flood and directly after the Garden of Eden, where everybody was one big family, but I'm imagining that slavery probably set in surprisingly fast even after that. Slavery has always been a part of mankind's sinful existence. That's just part of the way that it is. That didn't stop until about the mid-19th century for anybody. Not just America, the entire world had it there. It's just so ridiculous that he's asserting that America invented slavery. I mean, really, that would be like if America finds an island tomorrow that we didn't know about previously. If we find an island, we claim it, and we say, all right, our citizens can go and settle that land if you want to. You can buy some land on uh, our new island. Would we say that those people invented the Constitution? They're under the Constitution, because that would be, I guess, an American territory if that were to take place. Would we say that they invented the Constitution? No, that's ridiculous. That is a side effect of where they came from, which is exactly what happened in the Americas. In the same way that we wouldn't, if uh, people randomly found a, a new island somewhere and started colonizing it and started using fire, we wouldn't say that they invented fire. They learned that from people where they came from. That's not a thing that they created while they were there. It's just an incredibly stupid thing, and it, it really does go back to trying to paint America as an evil, horrible, racist place that is rotten from its roots. But this is the modus operandi of the, the Democrats now. Why would they do this? Why would they try to destroy our history like this? Well, ultimately it goes back to they knew that it would be impossible to impose Marxism on us. They knew that ushering in socialism would be impossible as long as we loved our founders, as long as we were married to the idea of our founders and upheld them as uh, people that we ought to follow, people that had great ideas. They knew it was going to be virtually impossible for them to usher in something other than free market capitalism, something other than the idea of inborn human rights that are given to you by God, not a government, and those things cannot work. They cannot possibly coexist with socialism, so they have to figure out a way to make us want to reject those things. So there have basically been two approaches to this so far. The first is integration. So what they, they try to do is they try to at least tell some half-truths and try to make us believe that socialism and a giant welfare state and all those things, that's what the founders actually wanted. Uh, this is famously, I remember back in 2013 when Nancy Pelosi said this, quote, I'm thrilled about the overarching plan, talking about Obamacare there. This is life, a healthier life, liberty to pursue your happiness as the founders promised. Uh, another very popular liberal talking point when it comes to welfare is they say, well, the Constitution does say in the preamble to promote the general welfare, which is absurd on a number of levels. I've, I've done that argument over and over again, but my point is there are some Democrats that actually believe that what we need to do is we need to trick people into thinking that the founders would have been okay with a lot of the things that we're doing, even though they didn't implement them and actually sometimes spoke against them themselves. And so that's one strategy that they've been using. Huffington Post, for example, and CNN recently did this shtick with the Boston Tea Party. They tried to say, oh, yeah, well, the violent riots, that's just, you know, that's part of the American experience. It's just like the Boston Tea Party. 
Again, completely wrong. If you want to know how, I actually did a video on that as well. You can check out my Breaking the Internet segment on my channel. I think it's my most recent Breaking the Internet, which we're actually going to do another one here in a second. But either way, check that one out. It's, it's about the Boston Tea Party and the riots and comparing the two. And then <laughs> the other approach is the one that we've been talking about today, is to smear the founders and make it to where we want to reject them. In other words, we look at the founders and their ideas as a bad thing that we want to get rid of. And this has become a more popular strategy in recent years. Now, in the past, this was typically done by just being very selective. In other words, okay, I'll give you this part of the story, but hold back this part of the story. Or I'll give you these details, but keep these details back here and not really mention them. Now they're just straight up making stuff up in line. That seems to be the new strategy from the 1619 Project. At least the historians that had sort of that dystopian American view beforehand they would at least cite their sources and they would give you partial truths, just not the whole truth or rip things out of context. Now they're just straight up making crap up. And weirdly enough, they don't seem all that apologetic about it and don't seem to be real great at hiding that they're making stuff up. But that brings us to what the real goal of all of this is. And that's indoctrination. They want to indoctrinate the children. They want to indoctrinate the American people into believing that the founders are not people that we should admire, that their ideas are not things that we should hold on to. And they figured that the best way to do that is to make out that the founders were some kind of racist that didn't really believe what they were talking about. And if you don't believe me, again, this is another piece of the 1619 Project where they claim that essentially racism and capitalism are married together that capitalism is a product of racism. So you can see the headline here. This is another one of the articles in the 1619 Project. In order to understand the brutality of American capitalism, you have to start on the plantation. And they spend the entirety of the article trying to marry the idea that capitalism was born out of slavery and slavery uh, is rooted in capitalism. And, and so inherently... Capitalism must be bad because slavery is bad. Ergo, they're together, they're inseparable, that kind of thing. And so that's the reason that capitalism, quote unquote, doesn't work. Now, this is hilarious, especially if you understand economic theory, because slavery and capitalism actually don't play well together. In fact, when you have an actual true free market system, slavery existing is a massive, massive drawback and a liability for that. Uh, I've actually done segments on this before. But if you're looking back like at the economy of the 1850s and then you look at the South right after Reconstruction happens, more like in the, the 1880s, 1890s when things have been rebuilt and they've recovered from the war, that's when business really starts booming, much more so than they did in the 1850s when they had slave labor. And so it's such a ridiculous claim. Uh, you look at the South and you look at the North, why did the North win? Because the North was more prosperous, more industrious, and believe it or not, despite the fact that they didn't have quite as much uh, percentage of their land dedicated to agriculture and had more urban areas, they also had more food <laughs> because they were better and more efficient at it. And that's because they didn't rely on slave labor. They innovated. They created new technology. The South didn't really do that until after slavery was gone. Not in a very meaningful way, and certainly not at the rate that the North did. And so the North won the economic war and won the actual war because they didn't have slavery as a weight around their neck. And so th this lie that capitalism is somehow the product of slavery is just ridiculous. 
In fact, capitalism works far better when you give everybody their rights. A true, a true free market just puts everybody on an even playing field and lets the chips fall where they may. You have to have big government to enforce slavery, and capitalism needs a small government to function properly. And so these two ideas just do not work together. And what's really terrifying is that this is now being distributed to schools free of charge, and there are already about 4,500 schools that have this as a part of their history curriculum, despite the fact that it has been largely debunked by historians and scholars on the right and the left that are white and black. They all agree that this is fiction, and yet schools are using it to educate children, and it's being used to educate them that capitalism and the American way, the American foundation, are evil and racist and must be thrown out. That's the ultimate goal here. And when it comes to the Declaration of Independence, this is why it's so terrifying, because it teaches them that that document is not something that is to be admired. You see, what this comes down to is that America has two parents. Our birthday is 1776, but there were people, of course, living in the land that eventually became America before that. America has two parents. We've got Jamestown, and we've got Plymouth. Now, Jamestown is the one that founded the Virginia Colony, which is the one that, in 1619, they shipped slaves to. That is where slavery started, at least the uh, slavery that resulted from the Atlantic slave trade. That is where slavery started in America. That didn't happen at Plymouth. You see, at Plymouth, there was no slavery. The reason that the pilgrims came here on the Mayflower was because they wanted religious liberty. And so these are the two ideas that were competing in America really up until about the time of the Revolution. You had the people at Jamestown, that they were there for making money. And there's nothing inherently wrong with making money, but of course if that is the only thing that you're concerned about, then you're not going to have a lot of moral qualms about anything else, and that's why in a lot of ways Jamestown went wrong. That's the reason that Jamestown almost starved to death, because they grew tobacco and not food because they were so concerned with money, they literally almost starved themselves to death. You didn't have that problem at Plymouth. Granted, they did have lean years, and they did have times where they almost starved themselves, ironically enough, because they tried socialism. But anyway, uh, at Plymouth, they didn't have any of those things. They believed it was morally wrong. And so you look at the pilgrims, and you looked at what they came to America for. They wanted religious liberty. That was the thing that was most important to them. The people at Jamestown, they wanted to make money so they could go back to England and make a fortune and live an easy life. That was their goal. And so America has these two parents. And at the Revolutionary War, when that happened, those two forces fought with each other, and Plymouth won. They decided that the reason that they should secede from... Because remember, most of the South, most of the descendants of Jamestown and, and the ideological thinking that came out of Jamestown, that was largely pro-Britain. The South wanted to remain loyal to Britain and maintain their relationship with them. It was mostly the North that didn't. It was mostly the people that were the ideological descendants of Plymouth that didn't. And so they had this fight in 1776, and Plymouth won. 
they decided, yes, we will secede from the Union. And then they had this fight again, and that fight ended in 1865, where they decided, we will get rid of slavery. It took us a long, bloody war to get there, but the point is, Plymouth went out again. America's foundation, yes, there are some ties to Jamestown, and yes, that affects our culture. I'm not saying that it doesn't. But ultimately, the ideas of Plymouth have always been the ones that actually won out in America. They've always been the ones that actually guided us. And that's the way that it should be. There's a reason that even though economic liberty is incredibly important and making money is something that is important to America, that the very first right guaranteed by our Constitution is the very first right that was important to the pilgrims at Plymouth. That's the side that won. They wanted religious liberty. Very first thing we did when we became a country. All right, what do we do? Religious liberty. Very first thing. And you go down the list, and that's how America was founded. Yes, we have influence from Jamestown, sure. I don't think anybody in their right mind denies that, but ultimately, ideologically, we are the descendants of Plymouth Rock, not Jamestown. But... That is why July 4th, 1776, is America's birthday. Because ultimately, that's the idea that won out, and it made us the country, the powerhouse that we are today. And that is something that is worth celebrating. We'll take a quick break, and we'll be back in a minute. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Where'd you hear that? The internet. And you believed it? Yeah. They can't put anything on the internet that isn't true. Where'd you hear that? The, the internet. internet. Oh, look, here comes my date. I met him on the internet. He's a French model. Uh, bonjour. And for today's, uh, oh, I almost said for today's Daily Dose Stupid, for today's Breaking the Internet, we have a meme that, this is not the only meme, this is not the only version of this premise that has been floating around the internet, but it's the one that I've seen the most often, so I figured we'd go with this. There's been subtle variations on the same idea. We're going to debunk them all at once, but this is the one I'm using as my example. So if you can see this one here, and for those of you listening on radio, I'll just describe it. Uh, so you can see there that it's a scene of some guys in Blue Lives Matter shirts on the cross, and they're looking up at the cross and saying, well, he's talking about Jesus. He should have just obeyed the law, and the other guy is saying, support our heroic Romans. And I got to tell you, when it comes to bad Bible memes, I find them even funnier than bad Bible tweets. Because at least with bad Bible tweets, and we actually did a daily dose of stupid on, I think it was Sean King recently, where he was tweeting some incorrect things about the story of, of Joseph and Mary fleeing to Egypt. At least then you can give the excuse of maybe it was just absent-minded or it was a spur-of-the-moment thing and he didn't really think it through. The thing that's funny about memes is somebody like went into Photoshop or some kind of other program and actually went through and selectively edited all of that, which means that they had lots of time to think about it. And they still show that they have absolutely no idea what is in the scripture. And so I think that's the reason why I like the memes better than the tweets is because I know that it's not just something that it was a spur of the moment thing. It means, man, they actually took some time to think about it and they still wound up screwing it up royally. Um, sorry. Uh, anyway. Don't know how that happened. <laughs> uh, so, to me, the the Bible ones are a lot funnier. 
And the interesting thing about this is Jesus did obey the law. Jesus absolutely did obey the law. He was in full compliance to the law the entire time. And to understand how he was in compliance with the law, just read the story of his trial. So not only do you read in the gospel accounts that he was completely innocent, but his trial was a complete sham. They came up to him in the dead of the night where they knew that nobody would see them. In fact, they, they find him about midnight and then they haul him away to do a sham trial in the middle of the night where the head priest who was supposed to be presiding over the trial isn't even there, isn't even present. They get the old former head priest to preside over this trial and when they get there, they can't find anything to accuse him of. So they go out and they actually, it, it, it's not clear whether they bribed him or they just found people that were willing to speak falsely about them. But either way, they got people that were lying and they knew that they were lying to stand trial. And so it's so funny and ridiculous how wrong they get this whole thing. Jesus was in compliance to the law. If he wasn't, they wouldn't have had to have rigged the system against the guy to make his trial stick. And remember that when they did come, even though Jesus was innocent, didn't break the law, knew that he was 100% in the right and that they were in the wrong and that they were doing this out of sheer spite and hatred, you know how Jesus reacts? He submits to authority and allows them to arrest him. In fact, when one of his disciples, Peter, tries to stop it, in other words, even though they were right, even though Jesus had done nothing wrong, Peter actually tries to stop them from arresting him. Peter comes up with his sword and cuts off the ear of one of the servants there that has come to uh, arrest Jesus. And, and Jesus' response is to heal this man's ear and tell Peter to put his sword away. And when they show up, he asks, uh, why have you come after me like I'm some kind of thief or a beggar? Did you think I was going to resist? You, you've come up to me with a brute squad. You've got staves like I, I'm some kind of criminal I'm not going to resist. I've been walking around in the temple every day. So, first of all, he was calling them out on the fact that they knew that they were coming to him in the dead of the night where they hoped the public wouldn't see it and wouldn't cry out about it. But it was also a call to the fact that, why did you people think that I was going to resist? That's essentially, somewhat sarcastically, what Jesus is saying there. And so, it, it makes the whole the whole analogy just completely fall apart that they're trying to equate him to, uh, you know, one of the, the victims here and, and trying to say, well, he should have obeyed the law. Jesus obeyed the law at every single turn, even when he was being wronged by people that were trying to use the law against him. He still obeyed the law. Even then it's a ridiculous claim. And the second part of this is they were saying, well, let's support our heroic Romans. Well, the Romans actually wanted to let him go. Remember that Pontius Pilate, he declared him innocent. And he said, I see no reason to do anything to this guy. This guy seems innocent to me. And I'm not excusing Pilate in the part that he played in this, but that was his response. And then what Pilate tried to do is he tried to sort of cleverly get away around this by saying, well, I, I have to offer a criminal to you. So do you guys want Barabbas or do you want Jesus? So he was trying to sort of under the radar, figure out a good excuse to let Jesus go. And then they wound up picking Barabbas, which he didn't expect. And so when it comes to this, 
the Romans were the ones that eventually wound up doing the crucifixion because the Romans have to do that by Roman law. But it was the Jews that actually convicted him. It was the Jews that made up the sham trial, and they were the ones that called for, and the, the elders are the ones that stirred up the crowd to call out the name of Jesus. And so everything in this analogy just completely falls apart with even the base level of the understanding of the crucifixion story. And another big thing that's sort of absent of this, and it's, it's the underlying thing that isn't mentioned by the meme, but another thing that would also be a false equivalency here, even though Jesus was 100% innocent, didn't do anything wrong, his trial was a complete sham, they railroaded him, everybody that was in a position of authority did something that they shouldn't have, had, uh, shouldn't have done and violated the law to put him on the cross. None of Christ's followers rioted, broke anything, tore up the town. His followers also abided by the law. Why don't we look at some modern examples of that? You remember that even though he had done nothing wrong, that the Birmingham Police Department put Martin Luther King in prison. And what did he do? Went along with it. And what did his followers do? Went along with it. Just like Jesus? Yeah. That's the point. So if you want to model yourselves after Christ, that's a good thing. The problem is what they're trying to do is they're trying to reverse engineer this thing. They're trying to cast Jesus in their image. They're trying to make Jesus like them as opposed to making themselves like Jesus. That's what Dr. Martin Luther King did, and that's the difference here. Dr. Martin Luther King looked at Jesus and said, Oh, I need to model my movement after him, and that will make us successful. With the people that are making this meme, the point that they're trying to make and what they're trying to say is, let's try to use Jesus as a weapon to make other people feel bad. Let's try to make Jesus like us. Let's cast ourselves as Jesus. And so their sympathy for Jesus will be projected onto us. That's the opposite of what Dr. Martin Luther King did. And sadly, it is an unfortunate example of how mankind seems to always want to make God in their image instead of remaking themselves in the image of Jesus Christ. Let's go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for The Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Since it is Independence Day, we're going to be doing a Chaplain's Report that reflects that. Let's look at a passage in James chapter 1, verses 23 through 25. And if you'll look there at the passage of Scripture, you'll see, For if anyone is a hearer of the word... And not a doer, he is like a man who he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, 
This man will be blessed in what he does. So in this particular passage, James is talking about the perfect law of liberty, which I think is wholly appropriate for the 4th of July. Now, I want you to really understand the context that James is coming from here. Remember that when he opens the book of James, and this is still in the first chapter, he addresses it to the lost tribes of Israel. So he is writing to a Hebrew audience. The law that they were accustomed to, the law of Moses, as good as it was, and it was, but as good as it was, it was not a law of liberty. It was a law of conviction. That it would inform you of the sin, and Paul talks a lot about this in his epistles too. It informs you of your sin, and informs you how to avoid your sin, but it offers no redemption. Once you are guilty of breaking the law, you are guilty of breaking the whole law. It's very different than what we're seeing here. James is talking about this as a law of liberty. Why? Because even though we are all violators of the law, the law of liberty is, but Jesus Christ came and died and shed his blood so you could have the redemption of your sins. That's a law of liberty. That is a law that liberates mankind. And so he's drawing this distinction here. And one thing that I wanted to observe when we're talking about liberty and we're sort of in the mindset of freedom, that liberty, according to James, requires three things that we see in this passage of Scripture. First is self-evaluation. He gives the metaphor of a man looking in the mirror. And then when he walks away from the mirror, he forgets who he was. So an important part of freedom is self-evaluation. You have to take an honest look at yourself. If you're going to be a free individual that is operating in a society, if you want to benefit the world, if you want to be a force for good in that system, you have to constantly ask yourself questions if what you are doing is right or wrong. You have to be able to, and be honest about it, you have to be able to look at your behavior and say, is this acceptable? Is this not acceptable? That's something that a people that are operating in a free society have to be able to do. I think that a lot of the problems we're seeing in the country today are the result of too little self-reflection. How many times do we hear people say that, that they're special and they, they grow up hearing all the time, you're, you're so special. You're special. You're, you're perfect just the way you are. That's the opposite of self-reflection. That just assumes that you're right no matter what. And it's an unhealthy way to look at the world. You see, self-reflection, evaluating yourself, and looking at the kind of person that you are, is going to spur on better behavior than you currently have. If you believe that you're already right about everything, if you believe that your emotions are all justified, and that if you feel it, it must be true, and nobody can tell you differently, then you're never going to do any self-reflection because you believe that all of your behavior is already justified. That the things that you're doing, regardless of how good or bad they are, regardless of how they affect other people, that that behavior must be correct. That's what a lack of self-evaluation does. I get so sick of it. People talk so much about having great self-esteem. There's nothing wrong with having good self-esteem. But do you know what group of people have the highest self-esteem? People in prison. I'm not making this up. They've actually done psychological studies about it. People in prison have ridiculously high self-esteem. Why? Because they have justified their own actions in their mind. They do bad things because A, they think they're competent enough to get away with it, and B, they think that anybody that stops them in that, for the most part, that they're the ones that are wrong. 
There's a lack of self-evaluation going on there. The second part that we need for liberty to take place is intentionality. You see, the person that walks away from the mirror and forgets who he is, that's a person that actually has done self-evaluation. Check that one off the list. The problem is they didn't remember what they evaluated. The problem is when they walked away, they forgot what they saw. And so what he's saying is, as important as self-evaluation is, it needs to be followed up. You can't just leave it hanging out there. It has to be intentional. It's not going to happen by happenstance. You're not going to be able to just be walking down the street and you eventually mature and get into a better person. This is the poison of the progressive mindset. It believes that humanity goes in a, a single curve upward, that the, the line of history is one of constant progress. It's not true. There have been societies that regressed in history. There have been societies that did really good things and really bad things. I mean, look at Germany, for example. Germany was arguably the most advanced, most prosperous nation on earth before World War I. And look what happened to it. They went in the wrong direction. And so you can have, an, if you don't have that intentionality, if you don't do that self-evaluation and remember it, and make an intentional effort to correct the things that are wrong and improve on the things that you're, you're kind of going in the right direction on, that self-evaluation just isn't going to do you any good. And then the third thing that you really need is responsibility. And I get that the other two things are part of responsibility, but responsibility is really this kind of idea that James is driving home here, where he talks about the perfect law of liberty, he says, and abides by it. So it's not enough to know the law, and it's not enough to know yourself. You have to also make an effort to abide by it. You see, if you understand faith the way that the Bible explains faith, you understand that faith is also always followed up with action, or else it's not really faith. If you look at, for example, Hebrews in the 11th chapter, it always says, by faith, X person did X. So by faith, Abraham left his home country and sojourned with God. By faith, Moses left his, his home as, as being a shepherd and pursued after freeing Israel and leading them into the promised land. And there are countless examples there, but what it all goes down to is that if we are to have real faith, what faith looks like is action. In order to really have faith, that has to be followed up by a, not, not even necessarily something that's just symbolic, an actual change in our lives that shows that that belief is real. Because if we believe something, but don't actually respond to it, have we really done any good? James will actually talk about this later in his own letter here, where he says, well, the devils believe and they tremble. What good is that to them? They believe in God, so what? And so there's a difference in belief and faith, and that's what James is kind of hinting at, and we'll get to a little bit later in his book, that to have freedom, to really take advantage of this law of liberty, the liberty that we have from sin, that's going to take responsibility. That's an idea that is an American as it comes. John Adams understood that the country, our constitution, would only function as long as we had a good and moral people. He said it is wholly inadequate for the governance of anything else or any, any other kind of people. And he was right. If we're not able to honestly evaluate ourselves if we are not able to honestly make an intentional effort to do better, and we take responsibility for our own actions, we abide in the law, we abide in that goodness, 
then tyranny is going to come for us. Because the people that are not good are going to need some kind of master. Think about it this way. If you're in a tyrannical state, do you need much self-evaluation? No, because if you're wrong, they will tell you in no uncertain terms. They'll do like they've been doing in China the past couple days and just go in and raid your house or raid your business and they'll take care of you. Self-evaluation isn't something that's all that instrumental to people that aren't free. Intentionality. That's not something that's all that big a deal if you're living in a tyrannical state. You don't have to worry about your intentions a whole lot because they're going to make you do what they want you to do. If you don't have, if you don't have intention, or sorry, if you don't have freedom, then that intentionality doesn't matter much because you're essentially a slave and they will tell you what to do. And then there's responsibility. Well, if you're just a faceless, nameless cog in the machine, then responsibility is really not yours. Responsibility is the people that are, you know, your overlords. And so we see very quickly that even though James is talking about spiritual freedom and the law of liberty, and we're talking about physical freedom and, and freedom within our country, the concepts are the same. James understood in order to take advantage of the freedom of a Christian, this new law that we have that replaces the old law, that was just about convicting people, we have to have these three things. For our nation to remain free, we must self-regulate. And for us to remain a part of the kingdom of God, we also have to self-regulate. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.